You're listening to Foreseeable, a production of Global is Asian, the flagship digital platform of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Each episode, we invite one of the school's public policy experts for a conversation relating to their area of expertise and to find out what they foresee happening in the future. In light of the COVID-19 virus that continues to plague China and other countries, we caught up with Tiki Pengestu, visiting professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. You are absolutely the man in demand right now. Your expertise... <laughs> I'm is, not sure why. <laughs> your expertise really matches what's happening right now with the, the COVID-19. 13 years at the World Health Organization in Geneva as Director of Research Policy and Cooperation Department. And I know you've been speaking a lot. Just a quick wrap-up on the current situation. I think the situation remains pretty grave in China. So I think that is going to be a continuing uh, challenge for the Chinese government to deal with. But at the same time, despite a lot of the rumors that are spreading around, I think they're doing the best that they can. I do not think there is any issue of them massaging or hiding figures. It's just that the situation is moving so quickly and they could be a little bit overwhelmed in terms of their capacities to to test people. Okay. In, in the latest developments, do we know anything more about the virus itself, like it's, as far as its virulence or its spread? What, el- what else have we learned so far? Yeah, as far as I'm aware, there's been no new evidence, at least that I've heard, that there's been any change. The technical term is a mutation in the virus that makes it able to cause more severe disease or be able to spread more easily. For example, people have been talking about airborne spread rather than droplets or close contact. I have not seen any recent evidence, at least not in the past four or five days, that indicates that that's uh, happening. Thank God. And what about any work on a vaccine? Yeah, obviously a vaccine is one of the best strategies to mitigate the problem. But unfortunately, a vaccine is very much a longer-term solution. And by the time a vaccine is ready, you're talking in the best possible scenario, six months, more likely a year to 18 months. Now, with the caveat that when Ebola hit West Africa, they did what they call a fast-track development. The issue is not so much the development of a possible vaccine. The issue more is to make sure that it's safe to be given to people. Okay, so in the case of Ebola, they fast-tracked the development. They got permission with support from WHO to fast-track its introduction into people, okay, without all the usual experiments that normally they would have to do before they are given a license to actually use it in humans. So depending on how the situation evolves, that might happen. But given history... I would say that by the time the vaccine is ready, the outbreak would be over. Right. Yeah. But that's not to say that it won't be helpful to have yeah. for any future outbreaks of this virus. And what about just on the treatment front? Have, they, have uh, there been confirmation of what the best way to treat patients? Yeah. At the moment, there's a lot of uh, quackery out there. There's something about rubbing sesame oil on your back. There's something about garlic and onion herbs, okay? That's total misinformation, fake news, if you like. At the moment, because it's a virus, okay, there are no obvious treatments. I believe that there was an antivirus medicine produced by Gilead in the United States that the Chinese was 
sort of said to have tried, but I have no data as to where, how many patients, whether it worked or not. But I do know for a fact that many labs in China pursuing the possibility of an antiviral medicine. Obviously, in this case, antibiotics will not be of much use. So the only treatment is to take care of the symptoms. Okay. Do we know yet, do recovered victims retain an immunity to this or can they be reinfected? I think it's probably too early to say because you're talking about patients who have recovered just within the last you know, weeks after getting the, the infection. So only time will tell. But on basic immunological principles, I would say there would be a window where they would be uh, protected from a second infection, assuming it's the same virus. It goes back to your original question. If the virus mutates or changes, okay, like what happens with the flu virus, and if there is theoretically a second wave with a new virus, it's likely that these people may not be protected. But if it's the same virus, just off the top of my head, they would probably be protected for at least six months to a year if the same virus comes back. Okay. So I wanted to go back to um, description of China, Mm. because I know in some of the other questions, um, at least compared to SARS, people were giving China a lot of credit for acting better this time Mm. and for Mm. learning the lessons. Mm. But are we being too kind in our assessment of China? Mm. Are they they doing enough? Do you think is there still... quite some horror stories coming out as far as the, you know, the treatment of patients, the doctor dying, the mistreatment of frontline staff. To answer, let me sort of try and get at it from a slightly different angle. At the level of the Chinese Ministry of Health in Beijing, okay, I believe they continue to be very transparent and open in terms of sharing the data regarding the virus as well as the disease itself, uh, especially with the WHO. And it goes back to what you said earlier. I think they le- really learned a big lesson after SARS that, you know, in the context of, let's say, international solidarity, viruses don't need visas and passports to cross borders, that if they do not behave as a good, let's say, global citizen, they risk becoming an international paria, which is what happened after SARS. They were widely condemned for hiding the, the real situation. So I believe at the, at the level of the Ministry of Health, they continue to, to, to be open, to be transparent. The second point and the caveat to this is, I would say they're doing the best that they can, taking into account the magnitude of the problems that they're facing, possible limitations in both... Uh, Uh, clinical care workers as well as laboratory workers to do the diagnosis, all the other medical support workers, people who are doing x-rays, the nurses in the hospital, they're probably facing a bit of a crisis. Situation is uh, changing uh, all the time. And this, I believe, this is my own personal view, is complicated by the fact that there is probably a communication gap between what the central government wants people to do and what happens at a provincial level and what happens at the level of cities, for example. Now, you mentioned the case of the of the doctor who died. Yeah, totally unfortunate. But I believe in that particular situation, you know, China has a very strict hierarchy power system. In, in that particular case, the mayor of Wuhan did not have any authority 
to make a decision on his own. Okay, he might have been well aware of the risk. I don't know. Okay, he but he could not sort of make a decision to say, hey, there may be something in this. Let us investigate it. I think his hands are tied. So there is some sort of I don't know, maybe some governance weaknesses in the links of command. Okay, I'm not making excuses. I think overall the government is still committed to sharing. Can you share with us any insight of what it's like at the World Health Organization behind closed doors when when crises like these arise and you've got the world's media, all the eyes of the world are on the WHO? How do they function? Okay, very good question. And I was at WHO when SARS happened. And the fallback of the organization is always what is the evidence. Okay, so we do this uh, through... Various ways. And as you know, with COVID-19, for the past three weeks, even a month, we have had an emergency committee working in Geneva. This is an independent group of international experts who are not WHO staff members, who have the expertise and who closely monitor the report from the countries. Okay, so the WHO first and foremost relies on reporting for countries. And what a lot of people don't realize is that countries actually have actually a legal moral obligation to report cases like this to the WHO. So it looks at data from the countries, but at the same time, it relies on this independent group of experts to say, hey, what do we do next? And as you know, this expert committee had been deliberating for the last two or three weeks. They delayed the announcement of the public health emergency of international concern based on the existing evidence. Okay, So I believe it's a very open, a very transparent, a very independent process based on scientific evidence. And that's, to me, the only way to move forward. At the same time, as you mentioned, for political reasons, okay, declaring a public health emergency, or a PHEC, we call it, is not something that WHO takes lightly. Now, why is that? It has a lot of implications and repercussions. And it's a situation, when I reflect back, is if you do your dam, if you don't your dam, okay? If you do, H1N1 in 2009, swine flu, we declared a PHEC, and nothing really happened. The disease was mild. Yes, it spread very widely, very mild. There were no fatalities, at least not many. Okay, And WHO was accused of overreacting, Okay, creating panic hysteria, causing economic impacts, etc., etc. So we were a bit stung by, by that. So this time, perhaps a bit more careful, in the case of Ebola, there was no hesitation. It spread it, tens of thousands of cases, 30% death rate, no question. We didn't deliberate. In this case, it was like, once again, a new situation. Huge problem in China. Was it a global pandemic? Maybe not. Low fatality rate. Many cases recovered, like in Singapore, they've been discharged. That's why they deliberated. At the end of the day, they decided for whatever reason, based on the evidence, yes, we'll declare it. So in a way, they're playing it safe. But as I said, it has a lot of repercussions. And perhaps... In relation to this, WHO can issue a declaration like that, but it cannot enforce it on countries. You know, WHO is not an international government that can enforce. And as you know, many countries actually went against the WHO recommendation. I mean, the US is a clear example because WHO very clearly said, don't impose travel bans. Mm -hmm. And yet that's what the US did. And I think maybe 10 other countries. So 
you know, it, you, people need to understand what WHO can and what WHO cannot do. Okay, I still remember during Ebola 2014-15, WHO was very severely criticized for being slow to react, not helping countries. And what I like to tell people is that WHO is not an organization that can send 100 doctors, 100 nurses, 100 field hospitals halfway around the world in 48 hours. It is not an emergency response organization. So I thought during uh, Ebola, we were unfairly criticized. And maybe this time around, WHO was a little bit more cautious. Okay. I'll leave it at that. I can go on for hours on okay. this. Well, I'd like to know more about what what WHO can do in, yeah. as far as their mandate. Sure. Sure. And what, besides just declaring a PHAC, sure. Sure. what other levers do they have to pull? And what decisions do they have to make besides just the big obvious decision of is this a, a crisis or not? Okay, so the bigger decisions they have to make, and it's quite obvious, is one of their main mandates is strengthening the ability of countries to take care of the health of the people, including situations like this. They are able, in fact, what I believe is their most important function is to set norms and standards or best practices. Like in the case of outbreaks like this, and on which the PHAC is based, WHO developed, or back in 1969, something called the International Health Regulations. Now, that's an international legal instrument, okay, that all countries sign up to, that all countries commit to implementing the various recommendations, including prompt reporting of cases like this, okay, including telling WHO if they're going to close borders, okay. So that's the first one, setting norms and standards. The second one that's very important is convening power. WHO has tremendous convening power. Whenever something like this happens, or even other sort of more controversial areas, patents around medicines is another area. It can bring everybody together around a table and say, let's collectively work together to solve a problem. In this case, for example, they are able to convene the World Bank, they are able to convene the European Union, they can call Mr. Gates in Seattle, mm -hmm. okay, hey, we have an international crisis here. We have established something called the PEF, Preparedness Emergency Fund. We need all of you to donate to this fund so we can help countries like African countries to prepare for that. So convening power, that's unparalleled. I still remember when I was working at WHO, whenever I needed to convene an expert committee like you know the one that's going for COVID, all I had to do was pick up the phone. The top people, the Nobel Prize laureates, the top scientists, they would come without any expectation of payment. That's the, the, the convening power. The third function is what we've already seen, information clearinghouse. Okay? As I said, it's a legal obligation. So as you know, if you look at the last four or five days, you see all kinds of numbers from all kinds of sources in terms of the number of deaths, number of countries, etc., etc. Okay, And it's, it's very confusing. WHO is the clearinghouse. So I always tell people, go to the WHO website for the latest, most reliable estimates. Okay, So that's the information clearinghouse. The fourth, which is no less important, is what I mentioned in the beginning, helping countries with technical support. Right. Okay, it, it cannot give money. It doesn't have a lot of money. Would you know that the annual budget of WHO with 160 country offices, six regional offices, is about $2 billion, okay? 
That's the budget of a medium-sized hospital in the United States. That put it in perspective. But it provides technical expertise to countries in terms of how they can strengthen their health system to better prepare, not just for epidemics, but for other diseases. So that's basically what it can do. But in the context of COVID, I think what I would like to emphasize is that perhaps its main aim is to continue building international trust and solidarity when something like this happens. And that's one of the reasons they do not recommend travel bans. Okay, can you imagine if the United States bans travel from one country, the minute you lock down a country, you're going to have problems. That country is going to say, hey, you're going to ban me? You're going to affect all my citizens? You're going to affect my economy? The next time something happens in my country, I'm not going to tell anybody. Right. You, you see the potential yeah. repercussions. So, you know, the overall is maintain international trust, maintain solidarity so that people continue to share information. Okay. Sorry, I, I get carried away. No, that's good. I, I, I can appreciate the passion. And I, I know it comes from experience. Do you want to share with us the things that WHO cannot do? Yeah, cannot do, as I've already mentioned, emergency response. It really is about setting norms and standards. You know, at WHO in Geneva, only a small percentage of our staff are medical doctors, and most of them are not doing patient care work. We don't have laboratories, okay? Uh, We don't have uh, logistic support in terms of flying equipments. We don't have stockpiles of medicine. So emergency response is something we cannot do. The other thing we cannot do is provide immediate financial support because whatever budget WHO has is mostly spent on the normative work. It's mostly spent on convening expert committee meetings. A lot of it is in terms of developing documents, for example, around guiding countries. What is the best treatment for malaria? What is the most reliable test for covid Okay, So it's mostly to support their technical work, so it doesn't have resources to directly give financial help to countries. So these are the two main ones that come to mind. And thirdly, what I already mentioned, it has no power okay, to enforce countries to follow their recommendations. You know, it, the, the way I've always seen it expressed is that it has a lot of moral authority. It relies on solidarity. Okay, If China hides something it will be condemned by the rest of the world. So it cannot enforce things. Now, I saw a very interesting article just a few days ago. How can that be changed? How can WHO have more clout in terms of, let's say, punishing countries that uh, don't follow the recommendations? And the interesting suggestion was, why doesn't WHO work with, for example, the G20 to establish a coalition of countries that sort of agree that they will follow WHO recommendations, and the countries that don't will be subjected to trade sanctions. Okay, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's really a, a bit out of the box, but somebody is thinking, you know, how can these norms on standards be enforced more forcefully, which at the moment it can't be. Moral authority, put it that way. Moral authority is what you have. Yeah. Um, when it comes to emergency response, mm. is the WHO 
giving advice or, or setting standards for that as well? No, absolutely. This expert committee that's been meeting and still continues to meet, they've formed a small team that have gone together with a EU delegation to go to China, specifically to help the Chinese deal with this. And, and obviously, they will be continuing to sort of analyze the evidence in terms of maybe even revising the international health regulations in light of new information that that can come up during the crisis. What are some of the emergency response organizations that that are out there? That's a good question. And I go back once again to the experience we had with Ebola in West Africa. What you're dealing with is an acute emergency situation where the local hospitals are being completely overwhelmed. People are dying. There are no medicines. There's not enough uh, facilities to quarantine, and people are dying. So in West Africa, in the three countries, Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone, the frontline responders were Doctors Without Borders, MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, the International uh, Red Cross, Uh, a couple of other NGOs. The point of that was they first responded together with whatever limited local government facilities there were. Within a week, they were completely overwhelmed. And I'm going to throw back the question at you. Do you remember which was the most effective organization who helped to deal with the Ebola crisis? Do you remember? No, I don't. If you think about it, it makes sense. The, the organizations that came in within a week understanding the gravity of the situation was actually the U.S. military, really? U.S. armed forces. Mm-hmm. Okay, they, if you think about it, mm-hmm. the U.S. armed forces, they have 2,000 doctors working for them. Okay. Two, I think 5,000 nurses, mm-hmm. okay. They have the command structure. Right. They have the, this huge Air Force uh, mm-hmm. transports. Yeah. They were able to mobilize 100 doctors, 100 uh, nurses, 2,000 tons of equipment, set up 50 field hospitals within 72 hours. No other organization would have that. Not only that, and I go back to international solidarity. Mm -hmm. In the case of Ebola, it wasn't just the United States. Okay, France, the UK, Germany, and get this, China. They sent emergency medical teams to help the West African countries. I believe that when it comes to situations like this, you know, all your conspiracy theories about the Americans releasing a bioweapon, I don't take that at all. I mean, I believe that most countries will appreciate the, the value of solidarity in terms of saving humanity. That's all there is to it. So those are the main responders in this case. In the case of China, I would say that it obviously would be quite sensitive for the U.S. armed forces to fly into yeah. Wuhan unless unless the Chinese requested it, okay? Right. That's an entirely different story, mm-hmm. okay? And whether Mr. Trump would even agree, that's another story as well. I think in the case of China, I would say their armed forces are well capable of helping. So far, I've not seen they've been really deployed, at least not in terms of patient care. But I think they have a very capable sort of reserve there if they need it. Obviously, at the moment, I think their frontline health workers still a little bit overwhelmed. I'm a little bit concerned, actually, at the number of fatalities. You know, that is really an indication of maybe lack of the right sort of equipment and facilities within these hospitals. I don't know that part of it. I haven't seen much information. Okay. 
Now, I know you're consistently concerned about developing countries whose health systems are not sure, as strong. Sure. And you mentioned now that many Chinese workers are going to be returning to Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that you worry about the possible spread mm-hmm. of these countries. Which one worries you the most? Is there a weak spot that you're really worried about? Well, you know, it's once again potentially sensitive issues, but basically, as you know, as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, China has huge investments in multiple African countries, both West Africa as well as East uh, Africa. I don't really want to name the countries, but there are hundreds of thousands of Chinese workers building infrastructure projects, roads, uh, ports, airports. And I would say, okay, with perhaps a few exceptions, and I'm in the category of the exceptions, I would put maybe South Africa, Tanzania, could be Uganda, a few others. Some of these countries have pretty good health systems, but the rest, you know, like uh, DR Congo, for example, they're still dealing with an ongoing Ebola outbreak. If they get hit with this over and above that, they're going to be in real trouble. So generally speaking, I think all African countries would not be too well prepared if something like this happens. Having said that, I think, as I said, there, there's been a window of opportunity this past week and maybe the rest of this week to maybe get enough uh, testing kits sent to them, enough masks, enough fever scanners, whatever they need, you know, so that when these people come back, they are able to be at least screened on on entry, hopefully minimize the possibility. Okay, so that's something we'll be watching in the next couple of weeks. I'm really keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah, Yeah. hopefully they are. Implement some sort of protocols as as this population returns. Yeah. I want to just wrap up with a couple of more local concerns. Sure. Like you mentioned masks. What's the deal with masks? Yeah, I mean, you know, despite what the government says, every day, front page of the Straits Times, don't wear masks unless you are ill. Okay, and as I said before many times, good hand washing habits is much more important than uh, wearing masks. Okay, but I blame this partly because. You know, during SARS, we didn't have to deal with social media to the extent that it is today. 18 years ago, it wasn't like that. So, you know, with the population at large, perception is reality, whatever is the truth. So this see all these news people in Hong Kong, China, everybody uh, wearing masks, and the government here announces we're giving four to every household. So, you know, people sort of take the precautionary principle. If you ask me, it's not necessary unless, of course, you are not feeling uh, well. You know, hand washing is much more important. It's probably a, a psychological okay. thing. And then the last question is just about, you mentioned social media and the way that that has totally right, changed right. the game and Absolutely. perception is reality. Obviously, there's been lots of panics and scares. Mm. Do you see anyone that is helping in any way, like providing some sort of fact check or yep. or, or consistent message? Yes, absolutely. Okay. WHO, okay? okay? You can see I'm a bit biased towards my old employer. Okay, this is, obviously, this is a real problem. In fact, WHO is actually calling it an infodemic, not an epidemic, okay? Well aware of how social media, in the case of COVID, has been, you know, quite a big factor in spreading misinformation, in creating a bit of panic, uh, hysteria, etc., as well as spreading all these nonsense uh, conspiracy theories. So what have they done? 
In fact, for the last year, and this goes back before COVID, okay, WHO had to deal with an issue around, I don't know whether you've heard of the situation where there's been a big drop in confidence in immunization, anti-vaxxers, okay, spreading misinformation. So going back to that, WHO in the last year has engaged 20 of the big technology companies, okay, and basically the objective is to make it harder for people to access misleading information, and secondly, to remove fake content. So what are the examples? Pinterest, if you type coronavirus now, you will be directed to a site called Mythbusters under WHO to tell you what are the facts, what are the myths. So that's uh, Pinterest. Google has set up something called SOS Alert. You click on that, it goes to the WHO data and information as well as WHO's Twitter account in six languages. WeChat, which is the WhatsApp of China, they, once again, are linked to the WHO Twitter account and WHO translates it into Chinese. Okay. Okay? Most importantly, Facebook and Instagram. They've uh, employed uh, human fact checkers using computer programs to pick up any suspicious news items. And once again, they link to the WHO sites as well as the CDC, the Central Centers for Disease Control. And right at this moment, the director of digital solutions at WHO, now that's a new position, is actually going to Silicon Valley, California, to meet with this big tech company. So definitely, I think they realize that that is one approach, as you say, to try and control social media with with the platforms. The other approach is uh, to also try the legislative regulatory approach. As you know, the Malaysians have actually arrested and sent to jail two or three guys who were caught spreading fake news about coronavirus. Okay, So there are a variety of ways, but in, I'm just using the WHO as one example of one attempt. However, having said that, as you well know, uh, the onus is still with Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. You know, are you serious about doing this? What are you going to do? And I think some people are still skeptical whether or not he has the the will to do that. But let's see. But at least, perhaps once again, with a push from WHO, it might happen. I'm being a bit more optimistic. Here. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to say before? Um, wash not really. Yeah. Just, just one final <laughs> okay. parting point. And this, once again, you know, in a situation like this, okay, I think the whole world, not just Singapore, is concerned about what is the world doing about it? Mm-hmm. Okay. And being in the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, uh, especially referring to my previous dean, Kishore Mabubani, who is a great believer in uh, multilateralism, mm-hmm. that is the role of the international organizations mm-hmm. in dealing with matters like this that affect the whole humanity. I want to say that I still believe very strongly in the value of multilateralism, in the value of the United Nations. I believe, however, coming from a developing country, there is no substitute for the UN mm-hmm. system, you know, in terms of international solidarity, collectively solving problems. But as I said before, be very clear of what the UN can and cannot do. Not just WHO. Mm-hmm. WHO is part of the UN. Right. And let me end by citing Ban Ki-moon, former okay. Secretary mm-hmm. General. The United Nations did not exist to take us to heaven, but to prevent us from going to hell. 
Very good. I rest my case. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. For more information or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to lkyspp.edu.sg forward slash GIA or join our Facebook group at Global Is Asian. That's Global I-S-A-S-I-A-N. I-S-A-S-I-A-N.